Thanks for tuning in to this special edition of the show with Mr. Peter Dunworth of the Bitcoin Advisor, where we talk about 2024 and what we can expect in the year ahead. We chat about FASB accounting rule changes, the halvening, Bitcoin being custodied by banks, and of course, ETFs. We had to chat about ETFs because ETFs are the talk of the town right now. I think in particular, you'll be keen to hear what Peter thinks about the ETFs. He's got a few controversial takes about how they'll be approved, when they'll be approved, who will be approved first. Whether his forecast sort of proves to be true or not, we shall see, potentially as soon as the 9th of January. But nonetheless, I think most of us would agree that 24 does look to be a monumental year for Bitcoin. And by the end of the show, we both left wondering, like, are we missing something? Because the tailwinds at this point are simply undeniable. I'm so bullish. I think you will be too after listening to the show. Have a great year. Cheers. Which one's the best crypto asset? Well, Bitcoin's the best crypto asset. Okay. What's the second best? There is no second best. There's no second best crypto asset. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Why Bitcoin Show. I'm your host, Dale Warburton. It's a weekly podcast on why Bitcoin matters and what makes it completely different to all other cryptocurrencies. If you're interested in Bitcoin and you'd like to distill crypto fact from fiction, you've come to the right place. All right. Welcome, friends. It is 2024. Well, I'm not in 2024, and neither is my guest, Peter Dunworth. Welcome to the show. Dale, thanks for having me. Let's go. So today, well, today is actually just, it's the 20th of December, but we're recording this in advance, and this will be coming out on the 8th of January. And that might prove to be quite an important date in the life of Bitcoin uh, for reasons we probably will discuss, or no, we certainly will discuss in the next few minutes. But just to sort of lay the foundation once again, uh, today's conversation with Pete is what can we look forward to in this year, 2024? What lies ahead, not only in the world of macro, but Bitcoin? So Pete, let's, again, let's start at a high level. The last episode we spoke really about sort of all the institutional momentum building and some of the signs we had obviously seen Bitcoin's price run up and a whole lot of indicators that Bitcoin was resilient. This was at least the takeaway from the conversation. Well, I kept on saying it, so maybe that's why it's a takeaway. But let's just dive into what what do you think sort of 2024 holds from a high level and then we can sort of jump to each of those little topics from a really high level i think the first thing that's going to happen is there's going to be a severe lack of sleep for most bitcoiners <laughs> this year and i think it's going to be caused by checking the price at midnight or one or two in the morning and basically pulling down on that screen and watching little green arrows shoot up by the second <laughs> and uh that's probably the biggest takeaway i can give for what's in store for the next 12 months <laughs> absolutely and uh you know, I'm laughing because I can relate. I was there for the last one, and oh boy, it was it was magnificent. Hey, just keep uh, pulling down, refresh that puppy, and oh god, it's up another grand. What the hell is happening here? And then that inclination to go and buy more, but that's exactly the opposite of what we should be doing. Everyone should have been stacking during the bear. So, when I think about what's coming in ahead, it reminds me of something I heard recently that Sailor was talking about saying, look, if we want to eclipse gold's market cap and 
even 10 exits, we need to have three things happen. The the one is we need to change the way that Bitcoin is accounted for just from a FASB perspective or fair accounting standards board or is that the right is that that right yeah. acronym? Yeah, okay, I got that one right. Uh because as I understood, it was it was accounted for in a manner that was really unfavorable towards corporates holding on their balance sheet. So love to chat about that one. And we know that the rules have changed. So that's the one thing. The other thing was the spot ETF. Okay, we got that one. And the third was banks custodying it on behalf of their clients. There we go. Okay. So we've seen two of those three things happen or in the last little while. Let's start with the FASB accounting rules because it's it sounds boring and it's pretty uninteresting to a lot of people. But perhaps you can explain why this actually matters. So if we had discussed FASB rules, uh, accounting rules, as they pertain to listed companies on the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ, it's basically a set of accounting rules that tells you how you are to account for certain assets. And when it comes to Bitcoin, how you are to account for Bitcoin, I believe is grossly unfair. And this is why the changes are coming in. And this is what Michael Saylor has been talking about in that under the current system of accounting rules across the well across the US, if you hold Bitcoin on your balance sheet, you have to hold that, you have to determine the value of that at the lowest price it's been since you purchased it. So let's take the curious case of Michael Saylor as an example. You had him purchase Bitcoin at roughly $30,000. Then the price fell to $15,500. And now we're sitting at circa 40, 40 plus thousand dollars. By all accounts, it should be fair market value at $40,000. However, on MicroStrategy's balance sheet, it's currently valued at $15,500. Now that is grossly unfair. And what's really interesting is if you compare that to the treatment of the US 10-year on the bank's balance sheets, <laughs> they get to buy they get to they get to buy the bonds at say 100 percent of value. They can drop by 20% in value, which is what we talked about last episode. And although they're only worth 80% of what they bought it for, the accounting treatment of those bonds, because they're considered risk-free, get to stay on the balance sheet at full, full value of what they paid for it despite the fact that if they sold them tomorrow, they'd have a 20% shortfall and therein lies the problem. So you've got one asset treated very poorly and you know with huge disadvantage when it comes to accounting practice versus another asset being the US bond treated with kit gloves and given every sort of preferential treatment that it can on the balance sheet. So the changes that are coming later this year are going to mean that there's a much fairer system of accounting for having Bitcoin on your balance sheet. And the flow and effect for that is that it's going to make it far more palatable for large corporates to now start putting that on their balance sheet as a, a treasury asset or treasury, treasury management tool. Yeah. And it, it is interesting what you say, how they treat treasury bonds with like kid gloves, because even so far, like very recently, I saw uh, an interview with Gary Gensler and he kind of snapped at the reporter when asked about the ETFs. And he was like, there's a massive, you know, this is the most important market in the world. It's the treasury market. And, you know, you're asking me about crypto, like just so indignant. And it's just like, and quite unbelievable. But yeah, I think as I understood it there, Pete, you know, in terms of the old rules, well, I guess the rules that will be in force up, up until December 24, 
effectively the only way for you to realize gains on any Bitcoin and actually account for it on your balance sheet is to sell. Correct. Whereas it's not, you, if it drops, as you've said earlier, you'd have to report that in your quarterly earnings as an impairment. Mm -hmm. And that then flows down to your net asset value. And that impacts, you know, if you're a publicly listed company, that really does impact valuations and all sorts of things. And makes all things, you know, all things equal, makes you a less attractive proposition. So is the idea here then, once Bitcoin is fairly accounted for, corporate treasuries will be more inclined to be putting something like Bitcoin on their balance sheet because now it's actually, you can actually account for it like how it should be, like any, any like digital property as opposed to intellectual property and other types of and patents and things like that, which is apparently how it's currently. Yeah, that's the promise. So yeah. we'll see okay. if that, that promise lives up to the hype. I think, you know, it's probably a little overhyped to think that, you know, that one accounting change is going to help put put it on corporate's balance sheets. I, I don't hold as much faith as Michael Saylor does about it. I think, you know, the market's sophisticated enough, as proven out with MicroStrategy, to determine that if you're holding X amount of Bitcoin, you know, the market's not valuing his 173,000 Bitcoin at 15,500. They're valuing it at whatever the fair market value is. So... It's just an accounting quirk, but it does remove some friction from the process and it does remove some career risk for the CEO. So in that light, yes, I understand. Will it be as big as we think it is? Ah, gosh, I, I don't think it will be. I think it'll end up being a bit of a nothing burger, but um, hey, let's see. I think it was important, obviously, for his business. So, um, and I think he had a big role to play in lobbying for that change. So yeah, but actually that's a, that's a good point there, Pete. I mean, it might just be a case of, yeah, it's it's now no longer career risk because uh, you can just imagine the blowback that a that a, a corporate treasurer would get if they stuck this on their balance sheets and they had to do massive write-offs of like eighty percent plus. Well, here's the other interesting thing is that if they if the ETF's out, they can go buy the ETF. Well, okay. and they get to account for it fair value anyway. And as I understand, and this is now coming from Sailor, if you're a U.S. corporate, a listed entity. You can only buy on your corporate treasury, you can only have 40% in equities, which are, and I wonder if how Bitcoin will be classified. Do you think it'll be like, is it like a digital commodity and then that won't fall into that 40% bucket? Or do you have any insight into that? Well, it is a commodity. It's being classified as a commodity. Yeah. So how the ETFs treated though, they may want to classify it as a share. So corporates don't get an idea that's that's a gray area for me i'm not not sure of but i know the underlying is classified as a commodity so you can have as much of it as you want on the balance sheet but when it comes to owning the etf that holds the bitcoin then that's that's a gray area i don't have an answer for that i'm sorry yeah no no, no absolutely i haven't heard that really discussed much all right so that was kind of the one thing that sailor uh, was talking about the other was i said banks now custodying uh, custodying bitcoin on behalf of clients and then allowing them to borrow against it we haven't seen that actually happen as of yet you can do that through companies like unchained which are a lot more transparent than i guess the likes of blockfi and nexo both of which i've dabbled with rather unfortunately but I wasn't burnt, so all good. But there's no transparency. They're rehypothecating the shit out of that, and you have no idea what they're doing with it. Do you think that that's going to be a story in 2024, um, that banks start custodying Bitcoin? Or is that probably uh, that's for a future date? That's a nothing burger. I don't think they're going to do it. 
Really? Because, yeah, yeah no, I, I don't think they are. And two reasons on that. The people who are in Bitcoin now who are self-custodying, you know, the vast majority of us are self-custodying, you know, what is it, 17 and a half out of the 19 and a half million coins are self-custody. They're not the type who just want to hand over their Bitcoin to the bank. So it's too premature for that. It's the market's too immature. The you know, hodlers of last resort are still here and they hold the majority of the Bitcoin and they're not going to hand it over to a bank. And it takes time for the ETF to filter through. And this is where, you know, the proxy for a bank holding it is an ETF holding it. And that's running on the existing finance rails or financial rails that we've got that everyone's accustomed to when it comes to, say, the US with their pension system, the UK, the pension system, Western Europe pension system, and our superannuation system. You know, those ETFs with uh, Bitcoin in it will all be accessible there. So I think it removes the, the dependency or the, the benefit of the banks holding it. And I thought I saw last year, uh, maybe even earlier this year, that you know some of the European banks are now uh, licensed to hold up to 2% of their balance sheet in Bitcoin. So yeah, I think, I think it'll be not as big a deal as we would like, but that will play an increasingly larger role um, in the Bitcoin eco ecosystem over the years to come. Okay, so it's essentially TLDR, like short term, probably just not on the cards, but maybe in the fullness of time, there might be some sort of role, but it's perhaps overstated. It does seem to me like I'm struggling to see the, the use case if we've got people who understand self-custody, they're not going to be keen to hand over to a bank. Or, you know, they're probably the last people in line I'd give my, my keys to. And then yeah. the other alternative is if I am a boomer or if I am an institution, I'm just going to buy the ETF, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. It's I, easier and safer and they don't have to worry about it. And where, you know, the thing that's going to incentivize hodlers of last resort to put their Bitcoin into a bank is when they're offering lending products against that. And this is probably a, uh, it seems like a ridiculous thing to say because it breaks every rule of finance, but how we're positioning clients now is to, have them set up in structures that are going to benefit the most by, I think, the year 2030, we're going to have every major bank and financial institution on earth is going to be able to lend you money against your Bitcoin. And the really crazy part of this is they're going to pay you to borrow money when okay, you, let's when talk you about secure that. it with I, collateral. I actually don't understand this. Let's go, let's go into that. Yep. So our fractional reserve banking system which operates globally at the moment means that when you put $50,000 of cash into the bank, they can leverage that $50,000 20 times to then go out and lend that money, a million dollars, to someone who's looking to purchase a home. So that's how fractional reserve banking works. And what is going to become apparent is there is, I think, two things are going to happen with Bitcoin. You're going to have really traditional conservative institutions who will lend you money on their Bitcoin, on your Bitcoin, but they are going to take effectively a mortgage over that Bitcoin because they're going to classify it as property. Now, that means they can't rehypothecate your Bitcoin. Mm. But in order to do that, they're going to charge you probably in excess of 10% to do it. That's when you classify Bitcoin as property. However, the banks, because they can't help themselves and because of, you know, the the pre-programming that we've got from the primordial age means that we as a species are going to be incentivized or want to go with the riskier option whereby the bank classifies it as currency. So we have two competing schools of thought. We've got the Michael Saylor where Bitcoin is property and we've got Bukele's vision of Bitcoin being a currency. 
And so under Sailor's uh, vision of being property, you'll be able to mortgage against it, like a block in New York that he talks about, but you're going to pay a really high rate because they're not going to be able to rehypothecate it. However, if you classify it as currency, then what that means is you put it on the balance sheet, your Bitcoin then becomes their Bitcoin. That's their liability to you. However, what that means is if you give them the Bitcoin, they can leverage your Bitcoin 20x to then loan out to anyone they wish. So all of a sudden that represents a huge risk to you, but for taking that risk and having you know their risk management, managing your Bitcoin, um, they're going to give you an interest rate that is far lower than the lender who basically says that it's property. And so because they can lend out 20 times what you've given them, they can then afford to pay you to borrow money from them. Mm. And who would they be lending out to? Anyone who wants it, really. So they'll be able to monetize that in some way, shape or form. And this is where a functioning credit market and stable coin on Bitcoin is going to explode the credit market. And by explode the credit market, I don't mean blow it up. It's going to it's going to grow the credit market exponentially. And this is because we've got a collateral that is the hardest form, the best form of collateral we've ever seen. And this is probably a, a conversation that we'll be able to come back to over the years to, to see where we're at, how that prediction you know, how did that prediction go? But to, to give you an indication of, you know, directionally I'm correct and I know that's going to happen and I'm very confident of it. Let me let me share with you the example that's happened over the last two or three years. If you went and borrowed money from Unchained, which treated your Bitcoin as property and it never rehypothecated your Bitcoin, yeah. you would pay somewhere between 12 and 14%. That seems like a fair deal to me if you expect, you know, huge gains in the next couple of years. That's a fair interest rate to pay. Now, if you put your Bitcoin into Abra, which is a lending service based out of the US, and you put up or you borrowed less than 15% of the value of your Bitcoin, they gave you a 0% interest rate on that money, up to $500,000 in loans. <laughs> so I know that Abra doesn't have a banking license and can't fractionally reserve your Bitcoin. But if a bank has a, fra you know, has, has a banking license and can fractionally reserve your Bitcoin, then it goes without saying that if they can 20x your Bitcoin, the competition globally across all the banks is going to mean that one of the banks at some point in time is going to end up paying you to borrow money from them. Wow. Okay. This, so, this, this feels like a, a, some time away though. You mentioned like 2030. You think this is sort of when the products start really maturing? I, I think every bank on earth will do it by 2030. Wow. Okay. Okay. We will, we will revisit that in yeah. 2030. Okay, six years from now. All right, so that was sort of the second pillar. And then the third pillar is, this is where I really want to go because this is, I think, what's got us all chomping at the bits. And this is what's going to keep us uh, awake at night. The spot ETF. So this is coming out on the 8th. I think we will know, we'll, we'll know by the 9th. We'll know by tomorrow, by the time this comes out, um, what the outcome is on at least ARK's ETF, because I believe on the 8th, they'll make a determination. Talk to us a little bit about kind of what's your insight into how this whole process works. So let's imagine they actually get approved, you know, one, several, all of them. How do you actually envision that happening? And then what's it actually entail in terms of going live? Like how long does that actually take? And that sort of process. I'll, I'll probably start off the bat with a bold comment, which will render the, what I'm about to say completely useless or put me in you know, God's status. Wow, what a savant. 
um, for picking that. But you know, we're due a response by what is it, the eighth or tenth of January. Mm -hmm. Personally, I feel like that is going to be a huge disappointment for the Bitcoin market, and we're not going to see that for many reasons. Firstly, I think, yeah, yeah, I know, Ooh. right? Everyone's like, Ooh, yeah, we're going to get it. Said, Pete. <laughs> okay, tell me. Now, I'm not saying it's not going to happen. I just don't think it's going to happen then. And okay. if I look at that, I think, well, you know, everyone's just basically got that baked in that it's a shoe in and everyone doesn't realize that they walk to the beat of their own drum they're not beholden to anyone and deadline schmedline in their world they'll do whatever they feel like and to think that they've got to do it because blackrock's got a you know they've had 546 out of 547 etfs approved like in short who gives a shit they're going to do it whenever they feel like it is the first point the second point is, if you look at the breakdown of the custodians of the ETFs, of the 20 ETFs that are in there, Coinbase represents 90% of the custodians, well, 90% use case. So 18 of the 20 custodians in use are going to be with Coinbase. And then you're left with Fidelity and Galaxy who are going to basically look after their own through you know, a subsidiary or the rest of it. Now, what I think is sort of you know, ironic, because it might have been lost in the wash because it's been quite an eventful year, is that Everyone seems to forget that because we've had FTX blow up, we've had Sam Bankman-Fried go to jail or, you know, soon to be, we've had Binance basically cleaned out, $4 billion fine paid there. We've had CZ probably going to jail for 18 months on the back of it, potentially. The thing that no one's talking about is the fact that, you know, Coinbase is still, have, still has an investigation for unregistered securities going on with the SEC. It's an ongoing investigation. And I'm like, how do you square that circle where... You've got 90% of the customers, well, 90% of the applications for this Bitcoin ETF are going to go to a an institution that has an ongoing investigation from the SEC. Now, if I'm Gary Gensler and I just want to buy a little bit more time and basically give the shits to the crypto people or Bitcoin people just a little bit more, because you know, there's probably no no bigger antagonistic bunch than a Bitcoiner or the Bitcoiners. What a great excuse. Turn around and say, oh, well. Look at this. 90% of you guys are you know, custodied with Coinbase and we've got an ongoing investigation. So until that's cleared up, we're not going to give approval. Now, that'd be perfectly legitimate excuse for him to turn around and say, yeah, we're not going to do it now. We might do it later when we've cleaned that up. But basically, we're going to uh, have a huge fine for Coinbase and that'll probably be in the billions of dollars. Luckily, their share price is up 350% this year. So their balance sheet can probably afford a billion dollar fine or more. And then once they've paid their fine, then they can get on with approving, you know, 90% of the ETF. So as unpopular as that opinion is, I, I think, you know, I had to deliver bad news here, but I wouldn't be surprised if that does not go down the way we think it does. And yeah, sadly, I think it will get done. It just might not get done by the 10th of January, which is what we're all expecting. You know what's funny? I love the contrarian thinking. I'm so stoked you said that because it's almost like what happens in these bull markets and I've been talking to a lot of people about is I just... The critical thinking side of me starts slowly shutting down a little bit. It gets, it drinks the Kool-Aid way too much. <laughs> and I love just hearing different perspectives because it kind of just brings me down to earth. And when I'm talking to normies, I tend to talk about it'll be approved by the end of Q1, mm. even though in amongst all the discussions I had with Bitcoiners, it's almost been a shoo-in. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, the market is priced in like a 90 something probability that will actually go through. But, you know, it, I just love that thinking, Pete. It's true Bitcoin of form, man, because, you know, like we didn't chat about um, Javier Malay in the last episode, but 
everyone is like Javier Malay, I'm so pumped. We've got a Bitcoiner in office, you know, a libertarian, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, because I, you know, come from South Africa, I've just got this inbuilt sort of suspicion of politicians. And I'm like, man, he's probably just the same as everyone else. And once he's there, he's going to be as compromised as everyone else. He can't get shit done. And he has to, you know, they basically are. Yeah, they've got to do deals. And, you know, he might want to say, fuck the IMF, but he can't because he's beholden. Uh, and he's owned in, in many ways and he'll have to do deals with him and say, okay, I need to push this issue and okay, fine, I'll give you this. So, so yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if Gary is having lots of chats in the back and they didn't give a shit. They can give a shit. They'll, they, they, they make their own rules. You know, like I have no sympathy for crypto people because I think they're just absolute grifters or just delusional. But if I were to try and play devil's advocates, the SEC's approach of, you know, regulation by enforcement is just fucking deplorable. I mean, create a set of rules that are very clear, issue guidance notes around those things, and then move forward. Like, you know, get that through Congress, do whatever you need to do. Like, you know, you, you need to try and create like actual clarity instead of just tackling this random one, this random one, this random one. You know, I don't, I'm like, I'm trying to be nice here to the crypto people, but it's like, yeah, if you're a grifter, that's my argument, you know? You know what's funny here? <laughs> they don't give a shit. No. no. And, and they don't. They're just sitting on it. They're going to do whatever they feel like. And this is where what, what abuses me is, you know, we think, oh, well, you know, under their guidelines, they say they've got to have an answer by the 10th of January or whatever the date is, drop dead date by whatever. And it's like, they don't have to do anything. They're the ones holding the pen, so they make the rules. They're going to do whatever they feel like, whenever they feel like. And, you know, we just sound like, you know, just yap, yap, yap from the cheap seats. It's like, you know, we, we don't understand. You know, it's their world, not our world. And, uh, exactly. you know, yeah. Exactly, exactly. It's, um on a side note, it reminds me of like, they, they hold us in utter disdain. They couldn't give a shit about us. They couldn't give a shit about investor protection. It's it's really just all about politicking, careerists, you know, progressing yourself. Gary's positioning himself to go and work at Treasury or at one of the banks. You can just smell it. He's just such a slimy little weasel. I actually like just can't look at him without like wanting to smack him upside the head. Because I just think to myself, like, it's amazing how much power these people have. And they know it and they love it. They absolutely love it. They just kind of, they relish it and they go... I've got people talking all day, every day, and they think they'll make a difference. Well, I can hold this all up. I can make this easy. I can make it hard. It's all up to me. And they, it, it just reminds me of the way that airlines treat us and doctors, dare I say. You, know? you have to be there on time or just wait. You know, And then you have to just wait. So like, anyway, rant over, rant over, Pete. <laughs> I love it. I love that contrarian take. So, okay. Now... The timing of the, the ETF might be somewhat in you know up for discussion. And I it's it seems like we're on the same page then. It's a question, it's not a question of if but when. Yeah. And that's the real that's the real question. Now, something I've been chatting to people about is like, okay, so you've got these different ETFs, they're gonna compete on fees. That can be one thing. They might have different, you know, custody models. This one might that you know like you said, 90% of them are using Coinbase. So that's already kind of, I don't know if they thought that would make it easier to get approved or not, but 
So like we can differentiate ourselves from that school, but like, what are the other things they can do? My thought was, well, someone's going to want to put their hand up, maybe, you know, a, a smaller player, not necessarily one of the Black Rocks, but maybe like an Ark or, you know, Franklin Templeton or someone down the track might say, you know what, um, we'd like to amend ours so that we can actually allow holders to redeem in kind. Do you think that's ever going to happen? Do you think anyone will ever want to do that? Or just it's always going to be kind of like a cash settled thing? I thought I read something today that BlackRock had an amendment to put that in. Did not see that. No. So that oh. could just be typical Twitter for, <laughs> Twitter <laughs> bullshit. But um, no, I thought I read somewhere that they were putting that amendment in to you know, take, take payment in kind, which would allow you to avoid a CGT capital gains tax event on withdrawal of that and allow you to take the actual underlying rather than having to sell it, pay the tax, then get your cash and then repurchase. So I think those sort of innovations are going to be spurred on, probably led by market leaders like BlackRock. And here's something really funny, like from our conversation last time around on-ramp. You know, that's what OnRamp does now, allows you to take payment in kind, which I think is a huge innovation in the space. So they'll probably restrict that to large institutions or corporate clients to allow them to take it in kind. I don't think they'll allow that for retail. It'll be a threshold that, you know, unless you're over, a you know, maybe 10, 20 or 30 Bitcoin, they won't, they won't let you do it. Okay. So I'm just, just out of, out of the, uh, the range there no, <laughs> no so it's almost like gold i know that some of these gold etfs like you need to have a lot in order for you to be able to actually go and redeem it um otherwise for the average pleb he can't get hold of gld or whatever it might be and say hey can i just get my um one ounce coin exactly right so yeah. okay all right so th so that's the so that's kind of the etfs and just mechanically, like, how do they actually work? And this is as much for me as the audience, because I'm just thinking, okay, so you're approved. Have you got any Bitcoin yet that in a separate entity that you can just drag across that you've been got buying quietly so that um, you've got more Bitcoin? Or do you suddenly now start going to mark? Do you go to OTC desks? Like, what do you actually do? Let's imagine you get approved now. How does it actually function? Well, it depends what institution you're talking about. So if you look at BlackRock, BlackRock's got multiple alternative asset funds. So those alternative asset funds uh, would be allowed to, I would have thought, or have the, the mandate to purchase Bitcoin now. So they might be getting a, a head start on it, potentially, just to watch this run up. Other institutions like Van Eck and Fidelity might not have you know, the access to do that. Interestingly, and this is probably something that I think is counter to what a lot of people are talking about at the moment. They're like, because of you know, the success of the, the ETFs sort of needing a level playing field, so they're all going to get approved on the day. I just don't see that happening. Like I look at this and just think this is going to create absolute bedlam in the Bitcoin market if they approve 20 ETFs on the same day. Because all of these ETFs are spot settled. So they've got to go out and they've got to find Bitcoin, like real Bitcoin. And yeah, you know, imagine 20 funds going out there and doing that. And so these 20 institutions control $50 trillion of capital. They'll have already had their marketing teams and sales teams geared up to try and get commitments for their fund. They're all ready to go. If they approve all of them on the same day, there's going to be this influx of capital, probably somewhere to the tune of, 10 to $20 billion would be the first day 
initial input is is what I think would happen. And you're going to have 10 to $20 billion worth of capital come into the market to buy Bitcoin all at the one time. All of a sudden, this is the God candle that Max Kaiser and Samson Mao talk about, that if we have that much capital enter the market, they've got to buy Bitcoin at spot on the day. And they're not going to have months and months and months or weeks and months and you know even years to accumulate Bitcoin like Michael Saylor did. You know, when he first started buying Bitcoin, he was buying three, two thousand, three thousand dollar lots every second for weeks on end. And he still only got to four billion dollars of purchases over the last three years. Now, what happens when twenty billion dollars worth of capital has to buy it in that 24 hour period? All of a sudden, it is going to do crazy things to the price. And the real problem is, is that the next day they're going to have another inflow of capital. Now, where it might not be 20 billion on the day, it might be one to two billion or whatever it is. But then that next day, you've still got to buy more Bitcoin. And then the day after that, you've got to buy more Bitcoin again. So all of a sudden, this is a real forcing function to get Bitcoin off exchange because it's going to be purchased by this weight of capital coming into it. So I think they're not going to approve 20 ETFs on the spot because they don't want $20 billion worth of capital turning up on the same day to buy Bitcoin. And probably something, and I'm trying to trying to remember who told me this because I think this is actually going to be one of the biggest issues of you know this cycle in the next two years moving forward is in this cycle we don't have a genesis trading desk to fulfill any size order that you want in mm. years gone past genesis was the be all and end all if you talk to michael about genesis they were always there they were ultra reliable they were the only trading desk in the whole ecosystem that you never had to worry about in terms of volume like if you went to them oh, and in, said... in terms of volume in terms of settling in terms of having the cash available Every other, every other trading desk you looked at and went, uh, are they good for it? Are they not good for it? We're not sure. But whatever Genesis said basically went. So, you know, when you look at that amount of capital coming in in that short a period of time and there's no longer the, you know, basically the, the trusted trading desk and it's got to be distributed across everyone, it's going to cause absolute like chaos in the market. Okay. So on that basis, you reckon they'll stagger it. Yeah. And then and then you think, okay, I suppose on the one hand, you've got the rules. So what the SEC is supposed to do. And then you've got the meta rules, or I don't know what the term would be, uh, the real politic of it all. I don't know. I'm trying to think of a better word, but you know what I mean? Like BlackRock would be the one first in line because old Larry owns a lot of people and positions of power. So is is that kind of the, the two things that you're thinking? Okay, so it won't be... It won't be necessarily all approved in one day. They will pick kind of, dare I say, winners and losers. And yeah, do you think there'll be that case? And then it'll be a case of, do we pick people who've actually, who got your first? Like, I think Kathy Wood is supposed to be first if you're going to play by the rules. Uh, you think it'll happen? I love Kathy Wood. I love her. I, I think she's fabulous. And up until recently, I got to catch up with Kathy quite often. So I've got... A huge amount of respect for her work and what she does and she's been first to bitcoin from any major fund manager and she's yeah. way ahead of the curve unfortunately i don't think it's going to work like that i think they're going to play favorites and although she may be entitled to be first cab off the rank i don't think that's how it's going to play i think there's going to be a couple of things that sort of play out this cycle that you know might take a little bit to get done but i i think the etf approval is going to be delayed i think you know, we talked about the fact that, you know, there's that unregistered security problem with Coinbase as a custodian. 
and Kraken actually as well. They've got their problem too, eh? Yeah, they do. And and the other unresolved issue that's sort of hanging over the industry at the moment, which is another reason for them to just kibosh any approval on this at the moment, which I forgot to mention, and I don't like talking about it because I've got a huge amount of respect for Barry and he's been very good to our family, is that, you know, Grayscale Trust, that's in line for a you know, rollover to an ETF and they're taking you know uh, the SEC to court on not approving it. And, you know, if some of the allegations are true about what, what happened and conspired, or transpired, I should say, within Grayscale over the last two years with Terra Luna and the, all, all of the trading that went on, there's a very real likelihood that they'll have to, Barry may be forced to, you know, abscond his position as owner of that that fund and have to sell it to market. Mm. And then, you know, that's another, you know, another thing that might need clearing up before they give approval. You know, they don't want a 650000 coin fund sitting out there that's got all of these potential issues with it that could blow up or have any sort of claim over it. So, you know, they might want to say, we want to we want to see that entity closed down and you can no longer run that. In which case, that'd be really fortunate for, you know, for BlackRock. They just get to pick it up. Exactly. Or, or whoever the successful bidder is for it. And I would hate to see that because despite some people's opinion of Barry, I think he's been instrumental in the adoption of Bitcoin and he was, you know, way ahead of the curve with what he did there. So yeah. it'd, be, it'd be hard to, to see that happen to him. Okay. Yeah, I know Matt Adele's been sort of on his case for the last little while, say a little while, probably 12 months or whatever it's been, all sorts of allegations around how that whole group dynamic worked, you know, DCG and Genesis, all that jazz. And... Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I, I don't, I don't like to go into that because he's been very good to our family. You know, he was a first round investor in Michael's business back in 2013 or whatever, whatever it was. Oh, really? I didn't know. Yeah, okay. yeah. He was very good to us as a family when we had a chat to him for an hour and a half back in 2016. And this was the busiest man in crypto, sat down and we wanted to invest money in his fund. And, um, you know, he was very gracious in his advice to us. And he said, go and buy Bitcoin and well, don't don't worry about it. Be a decent decent piece of advice. He's yeah, been very absolutely. good to us. Yeah. No, I don't know enough about it, Pete. Frankly, to make any comment, but um, anyway, it's just part of the noise. All right, so that's sort of what could happen. And then you think you you know you kind of I guess you've been in the game long enough, you know, to sort of have not only that institutional hat, but the Bitcoin Maxi hat, the philosophical. Uh, I wouldn't say you're a cypherpunk, but you kind of get definitely that. not. <laughs> no probably a terrible one actually probably marginally better than me though Doubt <laughs> it. the worst i'm doxed and i'm terrible <laughs> tech but you know when you think about this etf there is very like you know when it comes how it comes all that kind of stuff that remains unclear but it will happen and number will go up as a result over the course of time this is causing consternation within bitcoin maxi groups that they think on balance is actually a bad thing you know because there's a lot you know it's all kyc'd and uh it's not giving plebs the opportunity to stack well you know sats are cheap etc etc and then the others are going like you know we're also here we're, we're here for number go up and the revolution and they have to play by our rules and bitcoin's a system of you know rules not rulers and now we you know we now own BlackRock and blah 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 blah. So 
How do you grapple with that sort of dynamic um, in your head? And what role do you think the ETF is going to play kind of going forward in terms of the bigger picture for Bitcoin narratives? Well, firstly, on that first point you made, everyone had an opportunity to buy cheap, cheap Bitcoin the last two years. And if you didn't do it, that's really on you. It's not on anyone else. And if you want to have influence on society, sadly, the only way to do that in our current world is to have money. Basically, you need to pay for things that you want to see. And although I'm sympathetic to the, you know, the plight that the, the plebs won't be able to buy cheap Bitcoin, you know, they had a good two years of you know, really volatile down markets and they could have bought plenty then. But I can tell you from experience, very few of my clients actually want to buy Bitcoin when it was 15,500 US. No, it's going to 10, it's going to five. You know, we had some fairly prominent Australian economists and uh, fund managers talk about Bitcoin being dead when it was at 15 and a half and it's going to 5,000. So we might buy some then. I think we had uh, a little green chicken, Doomberg, make an infamous comment on that too. And, you know, the Bitcoiners, I love Doomberg, but the Bitcoiners have been ruthless in their interrogation and persecution of him for making that call. So, and Gareth Soloway. He's also oh, really, he's, really he's the latest. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's been funny to watch. Just don't make those, you know, short predictions because there's nothing Bitcoin is like more than reminding people who are wrong when they shorted. Totally. Um, in, in, in answering that question on a broader scale, I think everything's good for Bitcoin. So the price that it's down is good for Bitcoin. When Bitcoin goes up, you know, that's good for Bitcoin. It's, it's all good for Bitcoin. And, you know, if I think about what's going to happen with this ETF market, um, I think there's going to be like we're going to move into an era of Bitcoin where it's going to be pre and post institutional money, pre and post ETF. And so pre ETF was really interesting to watch. And it was basically a very immature market. You had the, the three major movers in the market up until an ETF approval have been crypto funds, hedge funds and leverage traders. They are the three class of investors who have really shifted the market dramatically. And if you look at the behavior of what's happened over the last 10 years with this, what's typically happened is those, those three cohorts, what they do is they'd invest in Bitcoin, Bitcoin had run up, and then they'd take some profits, they'd move it out the risk curve to Ethereum, that had run up, then they'd move it out the risk curve to Solana, Cardano, and well, out to well, sure. God knows what, yeah. And um, so what would happen is they'd run out the risk curve. And what's going to be very interesting, and this is why I think it's going to be a sort of a line in the sand measured by a number of different things, is the institutional money coming to uh, Bitcoin now with the ETFs is a much larger pool of capital than those three cohorts that I talked about previously. Yeah. And the other interesting thing about that is, is that the investments the institutions are making into the ETF are not going to bleed out the risk curve into the riskier assets in the crypto space. It's going into Bitcoin and it's going to stay in Bitcoin. Mm. It's not going to move out. So all of a sudden, this is very sticky money that goes in and it typically stays there for five years because no one, you know, no one who's investing one to 2% of their net assets into Bitcoin ever needs that money back. So they can afford to leave it there for the next five years and it doesn't really do anything. So this money is going to hit Bitcoin and it's going to stay. And this is where... I think this could be one of the defining moments where all of a sudden, although I believe it's a bullshit metric, that Bitcoin dominance, you know, metric when it comes to, you know, percentage of the crypto market, all of yeah. a sudden I could see that blowing out dramatically in Bitcoin's favor because the weight of money 
stickiness of it and the fact that it's not going to go out the risk curve is going to stay with Bitcoin. And that's going to be another driver for, for pushing the price up. Yeah. And in terms of the work you guys do at the Bitcoin Advisor, I mean, obviously the, the model there is all around collaborative custody. Fundamentally, still the individual concerned has access to their own Bitcoin, their own keys. Um, and you guys are really just kind of insurance, if you like. Um, now, in terms of the, the demographic that you tend to work with, as I understand, high net worth individuals and I guess all types of people who are interested in self-custody but don't necessarily trust themselves or whatever the case may be. How are ETFs going to sort of play a role now going forward when you look at what you guys do? I mean, I'm thinking it's almost, it is almost like competition in a sense. Um, how have you guys looked at that uh, as it were? Because it's now this new vehicle where if I think of the hypothetical boomer and I heard a podcast once again with Marty Bent recently with a, a guy actually I thought it was so funny his name's actually Freddy Krueger or Fred Krueger yeah um, I know where was he I, on Elm Street terrifying <laughs> <laughs> um but um you know he, he was just like and he's a Bitcoin he's been in the space since 2016 and he's just like I'm just so glad that I can now just I'm probably just going to sell it all like or a big chunk of it stick it and then you know, take the capital gains, whack, and then stick it as part of, you know, uh, in, in an ETF. And I'll split it maybe a couple, you know, across a couple of brokerages like Charles Schwab or whoever the hell else. And then at least the estate planning and all that stuff's done. Yeah. So I'm just interested to get your take on how that is. Because when I heard that, I was like, yeah, that is actually quite interesting. If I think about the average boomer, that's probably what they're going to do. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that is the case. And firstly, I think uh, Fred is a fabulous new voice in Bitcoin. He comes with a wealth of experience. I've had the good fortune to be on, uh, I think it's Mark Harvey's podcast. And I, I think Fred is brilliant. Uh, very clever, very clever man um, who comes with great insight and deep knowledge and you know, 40 plus years of market experience. Mm. I think he's correct in thinking that, that, you know, a lot of uh, people coming to Bitcoin don't want the headache of self-custody. And this is where, you know, Part of my life's mission is to help show people that self-custody isn't that hard when you do it in a collaborative format. Sadly, I haven't been able to convince Fred of that that uh, that notion yet, but <laughs> give me time. We'll, we'll we'll hopefully work on him and and see that there's value in doing that. But yeah, on, on a serious level, from the business perspective, I actually think it's a net positive for not only the Bitcoin community, but it's a net positive for my business because it brings greater awareness to Bitcoin. It also brings a level of understanding and it changes the complete social consciousness around Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. So now this is a product that's endorsed by all of the major, major fund managers. So all of a sudden what we do is only enhanced by that service offering. And it validates what you know a lot of Bitcoiners have been talking about for over a decade now, that, you know, it's the best asset on earth. It's, you know, to our conversation uh, or last conversation around, you know, risk and volatility. It's not risky, but it's volatile. Mm. All of a sudden, these things that come to market are, you know, just um, explicit endorsement of what we've been talking about for a long time. So I think it's all good for Bitcoin. Yeah. And, and another way of thinking of it, Pete, could be like, that's how they get into it. And then eventually they, they see the performance and they go, oh, this is good. And then they start learning about, well, you can actually the whole value prop is self-custody. I mean, that's really why the 
you know, that's why I kind of, it was created in the first place so that we can have money that we can transfer peer to peer without any intermediaries and we can hold it ourselves like digital cash. So yeah, maybe once they actually have got a little bit of skin in the game, they will give a shit to learn a bit more. And so it could just be an entry point. And if they've got an ETF where they can't take in kind redemptions, that might just then prompt them over time to go, you know what? Okay, I've got a little bit of an ETF position. I want to get more Bitcoin, but maybe this little, this portion will be self-custody. That's typically how it works. As that, you know, percentage of someone's net worth grows, all of a sudden their interest in, you know, self-custody, it goes up. And what we find with, say, collaborative custody is that, you know, for a lot of people, not your keys, not your coin is, you know, an absolutely fail-safe message for, for Bitcoiners entering the space. However, what my experience has shown is that once you get to a certain level of your net wealth, all of a sudden it's you know 90% plus of your net assets are tied up in Bitcoin, or alternatively, it's a large sum, like over typically two to five million dollars. People aren't comfortable holding that level of you know wealth um, and being 100% responsible for it. Or alternatively, you know, a life life event happens where all of a sudden, it's not just you anymore that you're responsible for. You're responsible for, you know, your wife, your children. And when you've got 90% of your net assets tied up in Bitcoin, all of a sudden, the thought of you not, not waking up tomorrow and your family not being able to benefit from all of the sacrifices that have been made to get that Bitcoin becomes pretty apparent. And the need for considered estate planning around the recovery of that Bitcoin and the passing of that to the beneficiaries and, you know, your family is of utmost importance. And this is, you know, a lot of the clients we talk to have had that epiphany that, oh my goodness, I don't have a plan to look after this. And, you know, I've talked to my wife about how to do it and, you know, it's just eyes glaze over and no interest in it. And, you know, sadly, I have that response at home sometimes too. And, Probably like most Bitcoiners, you know, we feel like we're unheard in our home. But, you know, when it accounts for that level of wealth in the family, you know, you feel like jumping up and down and saying, hey, this is really important. You need to understand this. But I think, you know, the beauty of the service we offer is that they don't need to understand it. They yeah. just need to know that there's people that they can call to help them through that. And there's they're not going to be alone and they're not going to muck it up. So that is essentially, you know, the value of, or the value prop of the business. And I don't think that goes away even with an ETF. And ironically, I think it's further enhanced by having an ETF because over time, people will migrate more to self-custody um, once they understand how easy it is in that format. Totally. And I think what's interesting is um, Corey Clifton put something out recently, and it's something I actually had thought about, not that I preempted him, but um, maybe I did, was... The, you know, Bitcoin is fungible in the sense that, you know, one Bitcoin is one Bitcoin, but maybe there'll be two different fee markets for kind of Bitcoin stuck in an ETF and then those that are actually in self-custody. Like it could actually be like that in the future. It's almost like, um, I don't want to say like a black market because, you know, but you've got like the official rate for the Argentinian peso and then you've got the black market which is called reality so maybe there'll be something similar in the future and Corey said maybe you know you could maybe it could be 10x uh, who knows um, maybe on a long enough time horizon but that's also something I've contemplated because once again the value proposition of being able to hold the actual assets as opposed to just exposure to its price I think in time will be 
increasingly valuable all over the world. So yeah, I agree. It, yeah, it's. I, I, I agree with that, and you know, you think about this from from a collateral perspective, and you know, collateral markets probably the most boring to talk about, but they're the most important because they make up the biggest market. If you think about holding Bitcoin as collateral v holding an ETF as collateral, it, it's chalk and cheese. You're going to get cheaper rates. You're going to get better financing. It's going to be instantly liquid. You know, you can liquidate it instantly versus holding it and borrowing against an ETF. The ETF, you're going to have margin lending rates because that's fundamentally the product. It's going to trade less than 40 hours a week versus, you know, putting Bitcoin up as collateral in the across the markets that are there that trade 24-7. You know, you're going to get a much better rate in those open markets with the underlying collateral being the commodity or Bitcoin itself, as opposed to the ETF unit. So all these things come into consideration when you think about there'll be a premium paid for the underlying. Totally. And here's what's funny. We have, we've been speaking about ETFs. We haven't even spoken about the halving, which is usually like <laughs> a huge event. <laughs> so, so let's talk about that. I mean, the most, uh, I think it's almost like a bit of a redundant question, but, you know, is the halving price in, in a sense? Are people front-running it today? Is that what we're seeing with some of the price action? Or is that just kind of a misnomer? I mean, um, yeah, what's your thoughts on the halving? I mean, uh, it looks like it's, is it, when is it now? Is it April, I think? Yeah, I think yeah. it is. Somewhere in April, yeah. The the efficient market hypothesis will tell me that um, absolutely it's baked in because we oh. know it's coming. So we of course it is. <laughs> Exactly. But exactly. Uh, the market knows. Yeah. I just don't think it is. But there are so many factors coming up in this next 12 months that, you know, there's not a lot of negativity around this. This is what gives me, you know, greatest cause for concern because I look at it and I think this is setting up as one of, if not the best trade I've ever seen coming into the next 12 months. What are we looking at? Well, you know, we're looking at ETF approval in the next 12 months. That's going to unlock somewhere between minimum 50 to $200 billion in capital that's going to flow into Bitcoin. That is going to send the price up dramatically. We've got the halving coming up. We've got an election year in the US. We've got quantitative easing happening. We've got rates coming down. Arguably, you know, we're going to have a drop off of interest rates, but that, well, I've got a question mark on that. We might get a nasty little jab at the end of the year where rates start, you know, rising again. So you mean everything in the US there, Pete? Correct, in yeah. the US. So yep. they've come up, they've come off a bit. Everyone's expecting it to drop, but you know, if inflation rears its head again, then Jerome Powell will just be really quick to you know jam rates up again. And I wouldn't be surprised, you know, although rates are circa four and a half to five at the moment in the US, I wouldn't be surprised if they come off dramatically mid-year and then finish the year up at seven percent, six seven percent. So that's going to cause carnage. But at the same time, the opportunity of Bitcoin is the fact that coins are coming off exchange still and liquidity is going to be really tight and there's going to be a just a, a faucet, fire hose of liquidity coming into Bitcoin, the likes of which we've never seen. So it's the perfect setup for a great trade and a good opportunity to set yourself up for the next 10 or 20, 30 years, maybe even the next generation by you know being very brave with investing more than you're comfortable with now. Indeed, indeed. And, and the one way to help you sleep at night is by having conviction and to have conviction you need to spend the time there's no shortcuts there's a proof of work involved and yeah i know for me it involved at least initially blocking off the exits to figure out okay what are all the things can, that can go wrong and what are the probabilities of these things you know whether it was 
government shutting it down or a 51% attack or whatever. You go through the list, you run through the, all the lists and there's some amazing content out there. That's why I, like, I don't have to produce anything fresh. It's people have done incredible work. And there's a website that I actually first visited that I don't think gets updated, sadly, but it's called Case Bitcoin. And it was it was actually my starting point. And that's where you kind of got to get, that's where you get going and build some real conviction. And that's where I guess all the exits were shut for me. And I go, okay, this is definitely going up. It's just a question of, how comfortable am I? And the more excited I got, the more time I spent on it because I wanted to be more long. So yeah, it is it is shaping up to be an incredible year. And I just, yeah, I, I actually, I don't know what can go wrong, Pete. That's, that's where I'm kind of, I think to myself and I go, is it too good to be true? Is there something that I might be missing? Like I loved your insight earlier about the ETF delay. That is that is a possibility. And I thought maybe a small delay, but these regulators are, you know, they're they're the masters of fuckery. And it wouldn't surprise me if if they just keep pulling different rabbits out the hat. They create programs to bail out bankrupt banks. So yeah, I mean, what am I missing here? Because it just seems like the perfect setup. I feel the same way. And if I look at what are some things that can go wrong, obviously, you know, we could have a failure in the network, highly unlikely. We could have more minor FUD. I expect that we're going to have minor FUD around April when the halving kicks in and their subsidy goes from 6.5 Bitcoin to 3.25. And, oh, no, all these miners are going to go bust, which I think, you know, there's going to be a lot of miners who do go bust. But, you know, the big sort of question mark in this whole equation for the next 12 months is when is this ETF going to be approved? And I think we're going to have a bit of a nasty shock that it's not approved on the 10th that we expect. And then we're going to finish the year really strong. And... You know, they're the sort of things that I think could potentially you know, go wrong initially that we're all disappointed that we don't get the approval that everyone's expecting. You know, maybe a bit of a curveball that might happen, could happen that would you know, be a huge event in the Bitcoin world, but hopefully it would be picked up pretty quickly. But what happens if, you know, Grayscale you know, gets told it needs to be closed and all of a sudden 650,000 coins come to market and need to be purchased? That'll have a huge amount of price suppression or allow the $50, $100 billion that flows into the market on the on the back of the ETFs to pick up some really cheap corn. Yeah, so, anything's you know, possible. It's, it's all it's all of the black swan events that we can never really account for that probably end up happening. And this is where with so many good things going in Bitcoin's favor for the next 12 months, you know, it's hard to see what is that black swan event. And, you know, yeah, yeah. On the balance of probabilities, people, though. People, hey, Pete. I mean, anything that involves human beings, there's only probabilities. There's no certainties. At least we know with Bitcoin what it's going to do. But <laughs> when it comes to people, regulators, uh, you know, entrepreneurs, anything can happen. Okay, last. This is the last thing. You've been really yeah. generous with your time. So, fast forward. It's December 2024. You're playing probabilities here non-financial advice where do you see this this thing going like what would you be your price target for end of 2024 if we were to pick up the conversation 8th of jan 2025 where, where do you think we are uh we'll be somewhere between 125 150 be my pick in us terms so we're singing from the same hymn book everyone thinks i'm bearish but i'm i said about 130 so that's yeah. sort of what i'm seeing I feel like that's quite conservative. 2025 will be a different story. 
you think 2025 is where the party really gets started yeah that's where it gets stupid that's where it gets really frothy and FOMO-y and you know we had a hint of that in the last couple of months about what we could see bitcoin rips ahead this next 12 months and you know i still don't think i'm sorry i still think we're going to have 30 maybe even 40 percent drawdowns in this bull market that we come into in the next two years mm-hmm. and everyone will be tearing their hair out arts oh, down 30 percent. this is horrible we're only up 100 percent this year instead of 150 dry your eyes <laughs> like it's exactly. uh hard in the it's, hard in the fuck app it's going to be fine so um awesome yeah i think that's about um that seems kind of where we're going to be but um who knows? Anything's possible. It's just fun to talk about. And I think it's going to be a, a much more enjoyable next two years in front of us than the previous two we've just had. So, uh, yeah. Amen. Amen. I've uh, I've paid my school fees. I'm now ready for some fun. Awesome. Pete, it's been uh, as fun as always. And I uh, really appreciate you being so generous with your time. And um, I'll be sure to put some links to to your work and, and, and where to, that people can find you if they don't know who you are already. But um, yeah, really appreciate everything you do, man. And uh, yeah, look forward to meeting in person soon. Ciao, mate. Thanks for doing a great job. Thanks a lot, mate. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and that you got some value out of it. Either way, hit me up on Twitter and let me know what you think. My handle is Dale21M. If you've got any suggestions as to people you think I should be talking to or topics I should address to, I would love that sort of feedback. Otherwise, if you want to support the show, there's a couple different ways you can do that. The first is just to share it amongst your friends and family. The more that people hear the message that Bitcoin and crypto are not the same thing, the better. And I want to help people understand that. The second thing you can do is give me a five-star review on whichever podcast app you're using. Of course, that's only if I deserve it. And last but not least, if you want to stream Satsmoe via the Fountain app, I'm not going to say no, but it's not expected. Thank you so much for your support thus far. It means the world to me. I appreciate the hell out of you and the best is yet to come. Much love, friends. I'll see you on the other side.